0: Luke chapter 1, 5 to 25, the birth of John the Baptist foretold. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But an angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, he is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zachariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to you to speak and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the days this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people we were waiting for Zachariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had been he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me," she said. In these days, He has shown me shown His favor and taken away my disgrace among the people.
1: Heavenly Father, thank you for our church family. Thank you that we get to have joy together. Thank you for the anticipation of Christmas. And God, as we look at some of these stories in which we see brokenness, but also how you turn it into beauty. God, we pray that my words would fall down so that your words would be lifted up and that every one of us, whether in person or online, would be spoken to our heads, our hearts, and our hands to respond to you in a way that brings you glory. Pray this in Jesus' holy name and all God's people said, Amen. amen. One of our strategic directions here at the church is that we would be people who invite include and invest. Last week after the worship service I was walking through the foyer and I saw a brand new young family attend our church and I was going to go over and talk to them and I realized oh they're already talking with a couple of brand, um, new families at our church who are connecting together talking together apparently they were invited to this small group and I thought oh this is okay they're already getting engaged. And so I was talking to a different couple when that family walked by and said Dave We'll be back. And I'm thinking, great job, church. You're including. This is awesome. About three weeks ago, somebody said to me before the worship service, hey, what's the sermon on today? We invited our friends, and they haven't been in church for probably 10 or 15 years. And I looked at them, and I said, oh, good. Suffering. And they looked at me with this sense of dread, like, oh my goodness, what does that mean? What is that going to look like? And a few of you, we talked before and after that sermon on Job, and we laughed about like, what does this mean? How are people going to respond? But truthfully, I thought to myself, it's going to be well-received because all of us suffer at some point. Right? It's one thing to hear this incredible story of how my friend Vicky was healed from cancer. She went in to, uh, to see the doctor. The doctor said, there's a lump on your breast. We prayed as a church. The lump was miraculously removed. She was totally healthy. And we hear that, and most of us go, that's awesome. Praise God for the work that he does in just miraculously healing people. But for some of us in the room, we think to ourselves, yeah, but why didn't he heal my family member? Why wasn't my grandpa healed? My grandpa, true story, is in a medical journal for the shade his skin turned due to his cancer treatment. My uncle wasn't healed of cancer. How do we wrestle with that? What do we do with that? We pray with people that they might have a child and they wait years and decades and then we cry with them because they don't have a baby. And then we celebrate with somebody who just had their third or fourth or fifth kid. And there's this wonderful celebration, but there's also the, but God, do you know how hurting I am inside? One of the challenges we have is how do we know, God, that we can really trust you when you answer some prayers over here, but not other prayers over here? If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to open them up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you're brand new to church, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you today. You can take that home, you can keep it. In the Old Testament, which happens before the birth of Jesus, um, we have 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. It starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these are four biographies about what Jesus is doing. And perhaps if you're new to church, or maybe you've been around for a long time, you're like, why are there different books written all about Jesus and all telling many of the similar stories. So here's kind of the background on that. Matthew is written for Jews, focused on the Messiah. So Matthew is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. After Jesus um, dies, is resurrected, ascends into heaven, he sits down and he writes out 28 chapters of this is what it means to be uh, a follower of Jesus. And he's writing for the Jews. Mark is writing for Gentiles. Gentiles are anybody who's not Jewish. And for the Roman church, they're trying to figure out, well, what does this mean to follow him. And then we're in the gospel of Luke. Luke is written to Gentiles in general. For everybody out there who doesn't have a Jewish background, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how we enter the kingdom of God. If you weren't here last week, I kind of threw out there, hey, if anybody in this church is Jewish or has Jewish background, please let me know. I'd love to meet you. Nobody talked to me. That's totally fine. And then on uh, Tuesday during worship pra- uh, um, planning, Pastor Joel says to me, Dave, I'm actually part Jewish. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And then he made me kiss his ring. And we went through this really weird ceremony. It was super awkward, but I'm sure it's totally fine. And Pastor Joel's a great guy. All right. Here's, here's what's taking. Here's what's happening in Luke chapter one, Luke writes the first four verses. And he says, here's why I'm writing. I am writing that you might understand who Jesus is. If you enjoy taking notes, I'm calling this Honest Struggles. This is chapter one, verses five through seven. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Immediately Luke introduces us to two characters and they are polar opposites. We have King Herod who is Herod the first, most commonly referred to as Herod the Great, and we have Zachariah the priest. Now you need to understand that Herod is incredibly impressive. If you go to Rome today, there are still structures standing that he built 2,000 years ago. He built cities, he built palaces, he built um, fortifications. He is a master builder. He actually took the temple that the Jews had and he made it beautiful. He was hoping that if he did so, the Jews um, would be uh, more kind to him and would um, make his life a little bit easier for them. So Herod is a master builder. One of my favorite stories of everything Herod did is he built a harbor. This is amazing. You might think, oh, good for him. 2,000 years ago, he, he put some docks in and that sort of thing. He invented... 2,000 years ago, quick drying cement that when placed in the water, they still worked and stacked them up like Lego blocks. This man was incredible. If he was in Edmonton, we'd have an LRT that worked. That's how good this man is. He is also a tyrant. He is concerned that someone is going to steal his throne. And so he's actually murdered his wife. He's murdered some of his children because he thinks that anybody who wants his throne off with their head. A first century historian actually says it's safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son because the pig will live longer. This man is so crazy that he would dress up as a commoner, walk around the streets, and if anybody spoke poorly of him, they would just magically disappear. We read in Matthew chapter two, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Crazy. Beside him is Zachariah. Now, for years, I would read the opening chapter of Luke and I would think to myself, oh, Zechariah must be really special. He's probably the high priest or has this important role, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Zechariah is a righteous and blameless man, but he is nobody special. He is not the head of his family. He is not the high priest. He has no special position. He's just an average dude. We read in verse six, him and his wife Elizabeth were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Zachariah and Elizabeth are the equivalent today of a faithful rural church pastor. Somebody that you can go to in the township that you live in and just go, we have a pastor who loves us, who cares for us, who takes care of us. We love Zachariah and Elizabeth. But there's also a little bit of a problem. In verse seven, we read, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. In the first century, if you were Jewish and you did not have children, the question was, what's wrong with them? What sin have they committed? What did they do that was wrong and evil that God would curse them in such a way of not having children? So as much as they were righteous and blameless before God and led their synagogue well, people were wondering what did they do wrong because something is awful in their life. I entitled the first few verses Honest Struggles because some of us are wrestling with that very same thing. There's at least three families in our church who I know of who are crying out, God, give us a baby. God, we want to get pregnant and we can't. People in my office who I have cried with and have prayed with and were calling out to God, give us a child. And it's hard because your friends are having kids and you're thinking, well, I'm happy for them, but we can't have kids of our own. What do I do with that? You might be sitting in this room right now or watching online thinking, God, I'm crying out for a partner. I want to go back home at Christmas and tell somebody, I have a boyfriend, I have a girlfriend, but why can't I meet somebody? Why is it so difficult? God, there's stories of people getting healed. There's people going to the hospital and getting healed. Why am I living with fibromyalgia forever? Why do I have Crohn's disease? Why can I not see well? Why am I hurting all the time? God, I'm excited to go home, but I'm the only person in my family who's a Christian. And they mock me and they ridicule me and they say, hey, isn't this the time of year where God comes and makes a virgin pregnant? (laughs) And you think, this is my faith. So after honest engagement... There's a, pardon me, after honest struggles, we have a divine engagement picking up in verse eight. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom on the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So there's 24 priestly divisions. In the first century, there's probably between 18 and 20,000 priests. And uh, two times a year, for two weeks of the year, your priestly division goes and works in the temple. This is what the temple looks like that Herod built. This is an artist's rendition. They didn't have um, 4K cameras in the first century. And this is exciting. Um, you, get, you look forward to serving. And so the regular priests would be out and they would be offering sacrifices. They would be ministering to the people. They would be cleaning up after Sunday morning, that sort of thing. In the outer courts, um, you could have, uh, anybody could be present. Uh, Jews, Gentiles, everybody can come worship together. In the inner courts, you can see the beautiful temple. There's an inner court just inside there. Only Jews can be present. The only people allowed in the temple are priests, and the only people that can go into the most holy place, so this uh, temple looks like the tabernacle that Moses um, developed with God back all the way back in Exodus, is the great high priest in that once a year. Now, you'll have to trust my math on this. I'm a numbers geek. I like it. 20,000 priests, three to four get to serve in the temple one, um, uh, once a year. That means if you're a priest for 25 years, you have about a 30% chance to serve for one week in the temple once in your life. So for Zachariah to be chosen to be the person who puts the incense in the holy place is a big deal. And his prayer probably went something like this. Dear God, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, We pray that you would send your Messiah, that he would rescue the Israelite people from the oppression of our Roman rulers. Amen. And I wonder if he raised up his head and looked around and thought the other priests have already left. This is my chance. This is the incense that goes up to heaven, which all the prayers of the saints combine their prayers together. And maybe he prayed, and heavenly father, you know, my wife and I are barren please, even though it's after the years of childbearing, give me an Elizabeth a child. And he opens his eyes and bam, the angel Gabriel stands before him and starts speaking to him. Picking up in verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zachariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And you must not drink wine or strong drink and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. I think many of us, would love it if God would send us a text message or an email and just say, God, be clear and direct with us. What are we supposed to do? What do you want us to do? Do you want us to marry that person? Do you want us to buy that car? Do you want us to get that new job? Should we downgrade our house or upgrade our house? What do you want us to do? And here is the archangel Gabriel, one of only two angels mentioned in all of scripture, standing in front of Zechariah, saying, this is exactly how it's going to play out. What's really interesting is that we have these verses in Luke 1, 16 and 17, and then we have Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 are the last two verses in the Old Testament. About 400 years of silence from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew chapter 1. And in these two verses, a reflection of this is what God has promised four centuries ago. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." And so Zechariah, a priest, a faithful, blameless priest, would have known this promise from the prophet Malachi and believed this is to be true. And the angel Gabriel comes and speaks to him and says, this is what's going to happen. This is a huge deal. And John is a gift to the church. John is like the prophet Samuel, whose parents are barren. And even before he was born, even before the parents are impregnated, say, God, if you give us a son, we will, um, we will dedicate him to you. God, uh, John is like the prophet Jeremiah, who even before he was born has the anointing of the Holy Spirit to speak and to share good news. John is not just like the prophet Elijah. He has the spirit of Elijah, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament to come and bear witness to the good news of Jesus. And what's taking place and even more amazing, Elijah is ministering during the time of Ahab and Jezebel who are murdering prophets all over the countryside. And John comes during the time of Herod who is murdering children. And John stands up and we read in John chapter one and chapter three, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. Now we hear that and we go, this is wonderful. We have our honest struggles. Uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth are presenting their honest struggles before God and God answers and that's great. But what if we put a pin in there and just hold that spot for a moment? Because in a room this size, how many of us have prayed and God hasn't answered our prayers? How many of us are still waiting for a child? How many of us are waiting for a partner? How many of us are waiting to be healed? How many of us are waiting for that good job? How many of us are wondering, are we ever going to be grandparents? How many of us have questions going, God, are you ever going to answer? So what do we do? Four thoughts. What speaks during silence? Silence. I think some of us are wonderful at praying and wonderful at reading scriptures and maybe even going on prayer walks around your community and you're praying and you're crying out to God and it just sounds like the heavens are unwilling to answer. But what speaks to you in the midst of that? The prophet Isaiah says this, "'Forget the former things, do not dwell on the past, "'see, I am doing a new thing. "'Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? "'I am making a way in the desert "'and streams in the wasteland.'" What speaks in the silence? sermons, podcasts, great books, music, friendship, just shopping and being around in the community and having something speak to you. What speaks to you in the silence when you're wondering if God is going to say anything? Second thing, and this one's hard, are you seeking God or his gifts? The other night I was um, praying ferociously for something that uh, I haven't had much of in my life. And I was praying and I was coming before God and I was like, God, answer my prayer. Hear my prayer. Help me to receive what it is that my heart desires. The very next morning I come and I start writing this message and I think, oh man, it's so hard. James says, you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And you think, but I do ask. And then verse three. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. You may spend what you get on your own pleasure. Third thing, keep worshiping and praying. Now this might sound a little bit like I'm preaching to the choir. Dave, we're here. We're sitting in the auditorium. We're watching from home. We're listening to the podcast in the car. We're doing it. And for many of you who come week after week after week, that might be true. But how many of us are here today only recently or maybe this is the first time because... We just don't want to go to church right now. We don't feel like praying. Bad things are happening. This was the story of Job from three weeks ago. I've lost my wealth. I've lost my homes. I've lost my kids. I've lost my health. I don't know if I can keep doing it. And Job says, I am not going to stop praying and worshiping. Philip Yancey, who writes on prayer says this, when I am tempted to complain about God's lack of presence, I remind myself that God has much more reason to complain about my lack of presence. Last thing, do we engage in Christian community? Uh, We met as a a church leadership back at the beginning of November. So the board was there, our staff was there, and we were talking about some of the things that we're going to do moving forward as a church. And I said, you know, I think I talk about this a lot, but I probably don't talk about it as much as I'd like to be talking about it. Do you have a great Christian friend? Do you have somebody that you can talk about your struggles and your triumphs? the challenges and the hopes and dreams that you have, where you can pour out your heart, where you can cry with them, laugh with them, be challenged by them. You pray for them, they pray for you, that it's a blessing together. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Who when God doesn't answer the way you want him to or expect him to, that you can sit down and say, this is what's happening. What do I do now? Writing to the church in Galatia, Paul writes, carry each other's burdens and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So you have these honest struggles. You have this divine engagement. But we also have big questions. Picking up in verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, "How shall I know this? How do I know I can trust you? I am an old man, my wife is advanced in years." The angel answered him, "I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, You will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at this delay in the temple. And When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went home. But after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. How do I know I can trust you? God, you're not answering my prayer. God, for years, maybe decades, I've been praying for a child and I have not received it. For years, maybe decades, I've been single and you're not answering For years, I've been crying out, Give me the job that I want because I don't have it right now. For years, I've been calling out, Can anybody in my family become Christian so I'm not the only one at Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving to bring up Jesus? God, do you hear my prayers? Are you there? And so here stands the archangel Gabriel. And Zachariah says, How do I know? And Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. I am telling you it's going to happen. We're in the temple, Zachariah. But we still have questions. Most of us in this room probably haven't seen an angel. I doubt any of us have received a text message or an email from God. How do we know? How do you know that someone's going to be good in the future. How have they done in the past? For any sports fans in the room, yesterday was the biggest North American contract ever signed. I was going to talk about Connor McDavid, but this is crazy. Shohei Otani signed a 10-year, $700 million contract for the LA Dodgers. That's a lot of money. Why offer him 70 million a year? Because they saw that he's probably the best baseball player to walk since Babe Ruth. They know they can trust him. Why did we go through the genealogy last week? Because Jacob realized that God can take the brokenness and make it faithful. Rahab saw the brokenness and God made it faithful. Uh, David saw the brokenness and God made it faithful. And when you look back and you think of your favorite Old Testament stories, whatever it might be, whether it's Noah or Abraham or Moses or Joshua or Elijah or David or Solomon or any of the prophets or whoever it is, God takes the brokenness and shows his faithfulness. Somebody went through the entire set of four gospels and counted every single time someone came up to Jesus and asked him a direct question. 183 times. What's the most important law? How do I get to heaven? How can I trust you? You know how many times he gave a direct answer out of 183? Three times. What about history? Out of the... Um, First World War and Second World War one of the fathers of modern mission his name is um, Charles uh, Hudson Taylor went to China and he wanted to bring the good news to the gospel of China the World War II ends and Hudson Taylor's successor Dr. Host comes in and he sees more and more missionaries coming to China and he's excited about the opportunity to witness to this growing country Dr. Haas spends three to four hours a day praying by name for all the missionaries as part of his organization, crying out saying, God, change mainland China. And God did. Chairman Mao shows up for all of China and he says, missionaries, get out. And over the next two years, he sent 7,000 missionaries out of China. He sent them to Singapore. He sent them to Hong Kong. He sent them to the Philippines. And Dr. Haas was crying out, how do I know I can trust you? Hours a day in prayer. What am I supposed to do? And God says, watch this. The gospel flourishes all across Asia. And during the dictatorship in China in the 1950s is the greatest numerical revival in the history of the world with a dictator in charge and no missionaries present. And God says, do you trust me? Will you give yourself to God? And invite the worship team to come and join me on the platform for the prayer team to come forward. And maybe you're thinking, God, I don't trust you. I'm glad that Pastor Dave is up there talking about the history and talking about the Bible and talking about the things that Jesus does, but how do I know I can trust you? What are the stories that are happening in your own life where you can see time and time again God answering prayer? If you enjoy biographies, there's a man by the name of George Mueller who does incredible works of prayer. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head how long ago he lived. He recorded in his prayer journal, I am not uh, misusing this number, 50,000 answers to prayer. But are we looking for them? Are we seeing them? Now maybe you see, well, Dave, you normally point us to Jesus at the end of the message. But here's the son of God, certainly all his prayers were answered, but they weren't. You ever thought that Jesus, some of Jesus' prayers himself went unanswered? On the night Jesus was betrayed, he had that last supper with his 12 disciples. And then he went with his disciples to the garden of Gethsemane to sit down and to pray. And going a little farther, we read this, Jesus fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Because Jesus knew that in the coming hours, he was going to be abandoned by his friends. He was going to experience intense physical suffering and his father is going to turn his back on him. A couple verses later in in verses 43 and 44, again, Jesus comes to his disciples and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time saying the same words again. God, if it be your will, take this cup away from me. And God the Father looks at God the Son and says, it is not. The answer to that request is no. Your friends are going to abandon you. You are going to experience intense physical suffering. And because you will take on the sin of the world, I will turn my back on you. And out of that brokenness, the most beautiful event in human history, Jesus Christ died for our sins Three days later, rose from the grave so that anybody who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Beauty in the broken. God wants to do a great work in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we be a people who continually come to you, who continually turn our eyes to you, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when we don't feel like doing it that we would be a people who come to you because we know that you are faithful and have shown it to be true time and time and time again. And God, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in Jesus, we have somebody who has gone through the same suffering we have even more so and has shown us that there is life and hope and something beautiful on the other side. So God, use our brokenness and turn it into something beautiful, we pray. Amen.